9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another edition of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkoff, and I'm coming to you today from New York City, where it's raining and awful, uh, but we have a good show with our, our, our usual uh, partners at this time of the week, including from NYU Law School and Just Security, Ryan Goodman. How are you doing, Ryan? I'm doing well, David. Thanks. Um, and uh, of course, in Washington, D.C., uh, Dr. Kavita Patel of the Brookings Institution, a practicing physician, former member of the Obama administration White House team. How are you doing, Kavita? It's also raining here. We're sharing weather. Uh, I'm blaming it on Elsa, right? That's what I'm blaming it on. Tropical is it, storm Elsa. Is it the hurricane? I think Already? so. I, that's what they're. That's what they're telling. That's what they told us. I don't know. So um, we'll go with it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, yeah, that makes it sound much more dramatic. Um, it does. Yeah. And will comfort my dog who's hiding under the desk because of it. Um, in any event, uh, we are here to talk about a book which touches on a number of themes we've talked about over and over and over again for the course of the past year, uh, has gotten fantastic reviews and is actually fantastic. Uh, we have one of the authors with us. Her name is uh, Yasmin Abu Talib, and the book is called Nightmare Scenario, Inside the Trump Administration's Response to the Pandemic that Changed History. Um, welcome, Yasmin. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, we're excited to have you here. Uh, we were saying right before we came on that I, you know, I'm doing a book on some stuff in the Trump administration on a regular basis. I hear things that boggle my mind and I, I saw some of them in your book. Yeah, I think, I think our books touch on a, a couple of similar themes and you'll of course explore them more broadly. We look just at the pandemic, but it was obviously not the only place it was confined to. Well, Ryan and I know our limitations well enough that we're going to let Kavita lead with a question or two, <laughs> since this is her area of expertise, and then we will step in shortly after that. But let me turn it over to Kavita. Yeah, and, and uh, not only have the reviews been great, but I can safely say I've had the maybe pleasure or bizarre kind of encounter where I've now been able to read five books about Kind of the Trump oh, wow. response to right, and and uh, I will I will just quantitatively and qualitatively say that this was uh, one of the it was the best. So it's fr- you, so you know much. it's it's heavily like researched and vetted, and then also just an I think just well written. So I'm gonna actually start with I have been trying to kind of drop in. You've been doing a lot of interviews, um, and I'm gonna actually start with a question. That hopefully you haven't gotten too much about. I thought the opening with kind of this scene with Dr. Fauci and kind of, you know, this powder and, and maybe you can kind of set up the scene, but I actually thought that what was interesting were perspectives. In fact, I, as I was reading it, I thought, wow, how did she get such intimate insight, her and Damien Paletta, your co-author, into like Tony Fauci, the man, because that's something that we just really never have seen even to date. 
and there are such vivid scenes, the opening one with a potential death scare, as well as some of his scenes with Dr. Burks and kind of conversations. So one, I just wanted you to kind of talk about, you know, um, the role of Tony Fauci. It really came to light in your book that he really did kind of serve as this career kind of civil servant constant yet someone who kind of prevented had this brick wall of like trying to prevent bad things from happening but then in your book you really did illustrate kind of the human what all of us have kind of very vulnerable element and the humanity of tony fauci there's been a lot of deification of tony fauci it was one of the first times i read something that gives you that humanity and his wife who doesn't get enough i think airtime and in the no, deification you know in the deification of tony fauci lose sight of the fact that i think that it was really her that we should kind of give credit to as a country when we're talking about like you know bless tony fauci so yes that's my question and comment no i'm i'm so glad you asked cuz we haven't we haven't gotten to talk about this a lot yet and it was one of the things we spent the most time on was really understanding the doctors, but especially Fauci, Burks, and Redfield as people and their experiences, especially because they all had this history together before this crisis, which we found really compelling and thought drove a lot of their decision-making in this crisis. They all came up kind of together, not together, but they all made their careers in HIV and AIDS. And Burks actually did work with Fauci for a time in the 90s. Um, so they had this really rich history together. They had been through a pandemic before where the government response wasn't sufficient and people were angry at the government for not doing enough. But of course, the politics of AIDS and the politics of COVID were very different. So with Fauci, actually, because of that experience, one of the things that was most important for us to really understand him and especially his health career was to really understand his history in AIDS. And to do that, we talked to the HIV AIDS activists who held him to account in the 80s and 90s, who protested outside the NIH, who would get arrested for protesting outside the NIH and the FDA, but managed to form these really strong bonds with him, even though their initial encounters were very combative and them being really angry with the government for not doing enough. And they kind of played a similar role here, which I don't think we knew about in real time last year. Um, but they were the ones kind of back channeling to him. They set up these calls with him, uh, with state and local health leaders, so that Fauci would get an idea of what was actually happening on the ground. What was relayed to us was that the White House task force meetings were often these really self-congratulatory sessions of, we got this many tests this week, or we got this many masks this week, and people kind of patting themselves on the back and applauding the job that they were doing. And Fauci would then talk to these AIDS activists who have contacts all over the country, and he realized they were just completely disconnected from the reality. And the CDC does have that information, but it didn't seem like it was being brought up in the task force meetings in a way that resonated with everyone. So they, they held him to account in that way. They make sure he gets on these weekly calls with the state and local leaders. And like you said, his wife, you know, when the pressure really ramps up between him and the White House and him and Trump, um, when they start going after him more aggressively and making it clear that they've alienated him, she really stiffens his spine. And she actually also holds him accountable. And he would kind of go home to her and review the day's events and the meetings and see if he, she thought he had handled things well, if he should have done more, if he should have done less. And one, one detail that I found so sort of 
compelling and, and charming was that she would review his emails at night that he sent off to people to make sure his his tone wasn't too harsh or that he was conveying what he wanted to convey because he can be kind of sharp sometimes. And so in that opening scene with the powder, I think the reason Damien and I wanted to make it the prologue was because it just captured so much of what had happened to the country last year. This guy who's a government scientist who was well known before COVID, but not in the way he became known last year. I think people in the health and science world obviously knew him very well. I don't know how much the general public knew him um, outside of, you know, when he would come on TV during a health crisis. And he gets this, this letter full of powder where he thinks it could be anthrax or ricin. And he either could be very sick or he could die. And it just was, was crazy that things had gotten so divisive last year that someone would want to do that to him. He was not even directly going after the president at that point. This was in August of 2020. He was just saying things that were contradictory to what Trump was saying, you know, saying, no, it's not going to go away. No, things are really bad. No, things are still going to get worse. And for that reason, he invited the ire of so many people. He was getting death threats and we thought it was really important to capture how bad it had gotten. And we also know that Dr. Redfield, the CDC director, had also gotten a letter with powder in it that no one knew about at the time. Dr. Burks was getting letters telling her to hang herself. So it was just, I think we were struck by what they were enduring that we didn't know about. We could see the public briefings and their public comments and would question them a lot of the times, but we had no idea what they were dealing with behind the scenes. And I, I just to put it out there, I didn't think I mentioned her name, uh, his wife's name, Christine Grady, Dr. Christine Grady. She's the head of um, the NIH Bioethics Institute. So it wasn't like she was sitting around with nothing to do, but, you know, review someone's emails. So just it really was brought home through multiple scenes, kind of how important she was in kind of having Fauci show up because it was clear there were many times with the opening scene being a vivid one that. It's not worth it. And and Burks, Redfield, actually all of the physicians kind of had a very human side to them in the book, which you don't get to see. And frankly, I personally have criticized all of them because of kind of judgments about their performance in and out of the task force and the committees and shows you how much depth there is. It's, you know, by the way, just to, I, if I interject, it's, it's, it's an interesting point that uh, Fauci's wife, who, you know, who, uh, Christine Grady was in this bioethics role, played a role in this. And if you read or, or, or uh, you know, about the role that, say, Colonel Vindman played, his brother, who was the ethics lawyer at the NSC, played a role in this. That, you know, sometimes these, these ties, close ties within the government, are, are essential for keeping people on track, giving them strength, helping them through these, mm -hmm. these, these moments. Yeah, I mean, so to your point, I mean, like you said, these, these positions, especially with someone like Colonel Vindman or with Tony Fauci, when they have these periods of time where they're really in the public spotlight and then they're facing the wrath of the White House and the president, it's so much pressure. It's so much more than we can see when we're just watching it all unfold. You can appreciate that they're getting news coverage constantly and, and what that must be inviting. But I think Damien and I were so struck by what all of these doctors were dealing with. And, you know, Kavita, you had mentioned that you, you criticized them last year. And I think it's totally fair to criticize them. 
And we try to document in the book, they all made mistakes, they all made bad calls or calculations that didn't pan out in the way that that they had hoped. But I think it's a lot of it is due to, to human error, to human flaws. You know, some of them are just not don't have strong enough personalities to stand up to the White House or just didn't know what they were getting into with this White House. It was not a normal administration. It was full of bullying and backbiting and sniping and an inordinate amount of time was spent on conspiring against your enemies and how to keep a leg up. And a lot of them just weren't cut out for that, frankly. And I would add that it's also interesting watching kind of the Fauci of now, you know, just because he is like kind of obviously very prominent, but uh, with this unusual title, chief medical advisor, or whatever that means exactly. But you've got Walensky, you know, you, you see him consistently getting airtime, but it strikes me that it's also a reflection of, you know, kind of where the downfall, again, Redfield, who was a colleague, Burks, who was a colleague, and they were not able to fill kind of any of that, despite actually being legitimately competent, Deborah Burks, very competent and smart, but they were not able to fill any of the, va the vacuum that was created by the overlay of incompetency that you document and you and Damien document. And then you contrast that, you know, agree or not with Rochelle Walensky, she's very confident in what she says. She has it all backed up in her evidence, et cetera. And then you add to that you know, any of the other players, a Jeff Zients and, you know, Andy Slavitt before he left. And it's very interesting to see uh, the power, not, not tilt, but it's not Fauci. And it's interesting to see kind of how that plays out. And I'm sure he's happy about that. I don't think he's disappointed by that one bit. <laughs> yeah, he had to fill such a big vacuum last year. And I heard this from a number of people where he he took on this really outsized role. After April and May, especially, he really didn't have a lot of influence in the White House anymore. They weren't listening to him. They weren't listening to his policy recommendations. But because, like you said, there wasn't really another health advisor who was speaking out in the same way, who was speaking so bluntly, who, you know, the half of the country that felt like they weren't getting the truth from the White House wanted to hear from him. Mm -hmm. um, he, he sort of took on, he was talking about things that were way outside his role as the NIAID director. Mm -hmm. um, he was talking about reopening schools at one point. He was talking about, you know, not just vaccines or whether certain drugs were effective, but what public health behaviors people should be taking. That's like, you know, supposed to be the CDC director. But I think, there were there was so much frustration that people felt like they couldn't get it straight and the CDC guidances were being written and rewritten and watered down that the CDC lost so much of its credibility that he kind of stepped in to fill this massive void. And of course, mm -hmm. I'm sure most of the listeners know, but it is important to know he could not be fired um, because he right. was not a presidential appointee, whereas all the other doctors could be fired at any moment. Ryan, do you have a question or comment about? Yeah, so I... I kind of do have my Fauci question. I was thinking it might come later. Um, and just to preface it by saying, I think of him as a saint uh, and, as, and a national treasure in terms of what he was able to accomplish for us, um, an international treasure. Um, but I think there might be some insight that would be great to hear from you as to, here's this person that we understand well in so many different dimensions, but he's having to navigate against so many different pressures and how, any human being does that um, in which they might need to make certain kinds of concessions along the way in order to be effective. So the kinds that I think about, um, and then maybe, you know, please correct me if 
I'm wrong about them because your knowledge of this is obviously multitudes more than mine, but when uh, Nancy Messonnier, the director of the CDC's National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases came out in late February with her statement that she said that, you know, the country should prepare for significant disruption, disruption to our lives. And then <clears throat> the administration officials closed guard on that to put out a very different message. Seemed that he was part of that, putting out a very different message to hers at the time. <clears throat> and maybe he struggled with that in the sense of, look, he can't go further than the consensus within the administration in terms of what he can possibly say publicly. So that's one of the concessions you have to make when you're collaborating with others. Um, another one that struck me was in June, he's asked in a House uh, hearing alongside his colleagues whether or not the president has given any directives of any sort to slow down the testing because Trump said it <laughs> in the public, uh, you know, at, the, at one of his um, rallies, Trump said, you know, I told them that, you know, what's all this testing? And Fauci said uh, in his testimony, quote, to my knowledge, none of us has ever been told to slow down on testing, end quote. But your book, you know, reveals that a couple months earlier in March, Trump is on a phone call with Secretary Azar in which, according, you know, your book says, Trump says to Azar, quote, testing is killing me, <clears throat> exclamation point in the book, right? Quote, I'm gonna lose the election because of testing, exclamation point. What idiot had the federal government do testing, right? So that seems to be, assuming that that information got out to Fauci, because Fauci was saying, none of us have ever been told to slow down on testing. You know, and another one is when Fauci acknowledged, acknowledged um, in an interview that he had kind of lowered the percentage that he said would need to be hit for herd immunity because, hey, the public could only really absorb <laughs> that amount at the time. And then later he ratcheted it up uh, because then we could try to reach a higher number. And I thought that's an interesting um, move you're making when you're supposed to you know, always retain public trust in these matters. So there's, there's my, uh, that's my Fauci question. Um, if you could give insight into how a person as you know, well-motivated and effective as somebody like him struggles with those kinds of um, compromises that they might need to make. Those are all really great points. And they're, some of those instances are not all ones that we cover in our book, but I think they all speak to the same point, which is these moments where it seemed like he was not being as blunt or as candid as he could about what was happening behind the scenes. And I think it's because he, in the same way so many people in the Trump administration, I think, make this calculation, felt like it was better for them to be there and to protect against what, what they viewed as the worst or be able to speak more freely than other people could. I think Fauci saw that as a very important role of his, that he could speak in a way that others couldn't. And to maintain that, you kind of have to thread this needle where you are leveling with the public and you're telling them the truth as much as you can in that moment. But you're also trying to not do it to a degree where you're going to be completely alienated or cast aside and it's clear your opinion doesn't matter anymore. And I think it was it was really clear in this scene where after the White House had released this what was the equivalent of a campaign opposition file against him mm -hmm. from the official White House communications office last July. 
um, and they say we're concerned about the number of times he's been wrong and they bullet point these instances, a lot of which are misleading or missing context or selective quotes. One of the AIDS activists who he's remained good friends with calls him and says, why are you still there? What difference are you making anymore? Why is it worth it? Shouldn't you just resign and speak out and tell the public everything that you know and have heard? Mm-hmm. And Fauci doesn't really want to leave because even though it's it's a miserable experience and he's incurring death threats and all of that, he feels like he's making a difference because he can get on TV and talk to whoever wants to hear the message that he's he's delivering. And so he goes with his wife, Dr. Grady, and they sit at their kitchen table and he asks her, do you think I should leave? And initially, you know, she's she's wondering why he's staying. The environment has become so toxic. He They're not listening to him. Is it really worth it anymore? But in the end, they decide it's it's better for his voice to be there than to not. And even if he left the task force but was still in the government, his voice wouldn't have this or his opinion and what he says on TV wouldn't carry the same weight if he wasn't part of the White House task force anymore, even though at that point it was mostly symbolic. They weren't really meeting or doing anything anymore. And so I think in some of those instances you detail that's the calculation he's making. He, he, he kind of goes up to the line sometimes where it's like, how can I still tell the truth, but not reveal more than I need to or say more than I need to in a way that invites unnecessary attention or anger from the White House? Because you're, you're always hoping they'll listen to you. And we document a number of instances through, through, through the election where he's trying to have these one-on-ones with Pence or with Mark Meadows or whoever it is to tell them what they need to do. At one point, he tells Meadows, if you don't change your strategy, you guys are going to lose the election. You need to you need to do something, which, of course, you know, panned out. Um, so let me ask you a question. I, when I did, you know, I've done a bunch of the books on how sort of Washington worked. And when I did the first one of these books, I was naive. You know, I was older than you are at the time. So um, my naivete lasted longer. Your book shows that you guys have not approached this with any naivete, but one of the things that struck me was that different factions would come to me as I was writing about things and try to sell me their version of the story, right? I I vividly remember I was writing about the NSC and, you know, there was kind of a Richard Holbrook faction and a Tony Lake faction, and they would come and they would say, no, this is really how the Dayton Accords happened. And it was, we were, you know, and I was like, wow, this is how history is getting written. They're like, they're like uh, sort of lobbying the book authors. And there've been a bunch of books that have come out about the pandemic already. Mm-hmm. And I'm already seeing this at work and I'm not going to get into which book, but somebody from inside the task force called me up and said, don't read that book because Jared lobbied that book. Jared was a big source of that book. And Jared was kind of covering his tracks and he's trying to Mm -hmm. sell a story Mm -hmm. of Jared's role. And we've had people on here who've been part of this, who said, you know, the way Jared handled this was fundamentally corrupt and the deals were being cut with people that shouldn't have even been involved. Um, Talk about Jared. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. We, we have a whole chapter about Jared and his role because it it spanned a, a, a couple of months and it was too complicated to try to weave throughout. It just needed 
its own chapter. And it was also indicative of the reporting we had to do on his role. We kind of did bits and pieces in real time, but we knew we didn't know the whole story. So what we found was that Jared, like he did in many other issues throughout the administration, saw this was the number one thing they were (laughs) going to focus on. This was the top issue. And so he kind of comes in and inserts himself. And the vice president and his staff had also asked him to, to step in a bit because they felt like they needed more of the White House to pay attention and to take this seriously. And Jared kind of could help move people over and move their focus in this way. But he comes in and the first thing he does is helps write the speech for the Europe travel ban, which was a disaster. It was the speech was all over the place. The president misstated what it, what the ban included. So, I mean, that's kind of the that's kind of the, the beginning of it. And then later that week, they announced an initiative that Jared pushes the president to go ahead and announce in the Rose Garden, which is this drive through testing initiative where you can go to a CVS or a Walgreens and a retail site and, and just drive up, get a COVID test and leave. And this was obviously the model that South Korea had been so heralded for because they'd made testing so easy and it was so difficult in the U.S. at the time. And then what I found out in reporting the book is that Jared had not checked with people at Asper who were in charge of the stockpile um, and in other parts of the government, whether they actually had the supplies ready to run something like that. And I think that was so that defined Jared's role in this so much. He did not appreciate the complexity of what he was trying to take on. He came in, he decided he was going to focus on testing and supplies, which were two of the most complicated, difficult intractable issues to solve at the time and thought it was a matter of cutting through government red tape and bureaucracy. And, you know, he just had to make government move faster, which was what he liked to tell people a lot. And so with the test, sorry. Oh, sorry. No, no, no. Yes. I have, I have an an addition to that. Go ahead. (laughs) So, so they, when they launched this testing initiative, they take a third of the supplies from the national stockpile to run, I think, 44 sites for like five to 10 days. So so not a lot. And, um, and then what happens is it causes a two-week testing shortage. So the FDA starts hearing from a bunch of the commercial testing manufacturers that they can't get swabs and they have tests, but they can't run them. And so then because of, because of this push, the government across um, Asper, across BARDA, FDA, DOD, they all have to work together to get a Department of Defense plane to go to Copan, Italy, which had the only manufacturing plant at the time that produced swabs. So the plane takes off, the pilot emails and says, no one's given him authorization to take off, someone needs to sign off. And Bob Cadlick, who was the head of emergency preparedness at the time says, I'm authorizing you to go, go. He was not the one who had the authority, but they were just so desperate that they were like, we'll deal with it later. And the plane does successfully airlift back about 20 million swabs. And so, you know, they can resolve that issue. But it was just, I think, indicative of this mentality that was so pervasive throughout the response, which was people were kind of free to come in and to take over. And it was never clear what the lines of communication were or who was the leader. And they could all come in without the expertise needed and just kind of command people to do things. And you saw that also play out with ventilators. They bought way too many ventilators because all the headlines were, say, were, were saying we were going to have a ventilator shortage. Andrew Cuomo was talking about a ventilator shortage. And 
yes, it was, it was, it was a real problem. It was something people were worried about, but then they ended up buying millions of ventilators that the country didn't need with some really bad deals, um, as opposed to focusing on more basic supplies that were needed at the time, or at least dividing their attention. One person, more than one person, a number of people told us they were just chasing headlines. And sometimes it was well-intentioned, sometimes it was not. They bullied the company 3M and threatened their CEO with jail over N95 masks. It just was, it was a lot of, I, I know I've used this a lot already, but it was a lot of bullying. Someone said they were acting like thugs and you can't treat a, a company that's a major partner to the US government in that way. So it was, there were some good things that got done. Jared sometimes could make a phone call and get things done a little bit quicker on, on, on specific tasks. But I think there were, there were obviously a lot of problems created by that. And then in July, he left and turned his attention elsewhere. So, so at the Washington Post, they don't let you use terms like clusterfuck. <laughs> No, 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 definitely not in to, print. <laughs> it, has to, it has to be really justified. I see. Kavita? I, I have to, I just want to augment because it, it was very clear in that chapter. And it is also something that is consistent in the other books about COVID that I read. It was just Jared's way where he also brought in, he imported kind of friends from private equity. You know, he imported basically kind of mini Jared's who had, you know, all staying at the Mayflower or kind of five-star hotels around the White House and who were given like West Wing clearance and access to command other people and tell like Robert Cadlick and other people what to do. Kind of, again, speaking to me, just not only Jared's pathos and personality, but also, yes, I mean, like the story, I, kind of a former, a lot of us are kind of former government people kind of reading this and, and, and will be listening, current or former government people, they just cut the legs out from any government response. One scene, and you know, if I sound like I'm praising Alex Azar for his role in the response to COVID, I'm not. But I will say I have to give, um, and I've worked with Alex. I actually, I, he's a smart person. He was, in fairness, one of the first people you, you, both you and Damien, kind of recount and or write about this accurately. Uh, Alex was one of the very early people with Matt Pottinger and kind of others to sound like an alarm bell, and was just incredibly just shut out and clearly marginalized replaced in a way by Jared and this kind of importation of people from New York who must really know what they're doing because they handle private equity investments. And so mm -hmm. it's, it's such a, it's such a view into like the it, it, arrogance, sheer like disrespect of like career civil servants, people who've done this for a living. And then at the same time, I mean, it, there was never anybody in Trump's orbit who could actually, I don't think anybody else could penetrate through if it weren't from Ivanka or Jared or a handful of people, Mark Meadows and others. I don't think any of them could have actually coordinated a response and gotten through because that was just not something that anybody wanted nor let happen because that scene with Alex and it was January or February, 2020, early on, you know, he was, uh, to give him credit, he was trying to get the message to the president. Um, and I don't give him credit because he never carried through and that was his job, but he actually tried and, and failed, obviously. He did. And I think that's totally fair. Um, Damien and I spent a lot of time looking at Azar's role and mm -hmm. trying to understand where he where he fit in this because obviously he was leading it at one point and then he was completely cast aside and then he kind of comes back after almost getting fired and 
um, he was, he was, he was worried from the very beginning. And he, he immediately draws the analogy when he first briefs the president to SARS and MERS, which has obviously ended up being much, much worse then. But he does start to get very worried towards the end of January. And I thought one thing that was so telling um, that we haven't really talked about a lot because it was so long ago is that when they announced the China travel ban, Mm -hmm. you know, the president obviously kept pointing to that as evidence of his early decisive action. Mm -hmm. But in reality, he was so reluctant to do that Mm -hmm. because they had just signed the China trade deal Mm -hmm. and that dictated so much of his early posturing towards the virus into President Xi and, and what he was going to say about it, which he obviously did a 180 on later. And when they, when they all unanimously come to him and say that they need to do the China travel ban, he makes Azar go announce it by himself. He says, fine, I don't really want to do this, but everyone was on board at that point. And so he, he couldn't really push back anymore. And he says, you have to do it. So the, as much as he took credit for it, if you go back and watch the briefing where they announced the China travel ban, the president's nowhere to be found. And I, one other detail that was was really interesting, I, I can't remember if it's in the book now, is that when Nazar signed the declaration for it or, or whatever piece of paper he signed to put it into effect, he was in a room in the White House by himself. No one was there with him. And his chief of staff just took a picture of him on his cell phone so that they would have something to mark the occasion. Um, I'll go to Ryan for a question, but I do want to observe that in the midst of this, you talk about the people who are, you know, you know, early warning signs and 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 also the role self-interest plays in this. Peter Navarro, who is cuckoo for cocoa puffs, I mean, just not <laughs> an appropriate senior government official. Um, what was the designated China hater in the White House was very early on to the this is a big deal because it served his agenda of hating China. And so he just sort of embraced it and that led to the China travel ban and, and so forth. Ryan. Um, so I, I guess I'd love to hear you talk about how race and politics, crass politics <laughs> may have played a role in how Trump and Jared um, and others dealt with this. So you know, there's definitely a part in the book we say, um, there's a quote here, uh, Trump did little to focus on racial disparities in the weeks to come, which is one part of it. And that the Surgeon General at the time, Jerome Adams, just felt like he needed to stick it out because he was the only person really raising racial disparity issues. But I also wondered always at the time how much racial disparity issues also clouded their judgment in terms of urgency. Um, about some dimensions of the pandemic. And then another one to take something that's related but not fully connected to it is politics, crude politics. So there was reporting, it was I think Catherine, no, it was Catherine Eben in, the, in Vanity Fair that there was a member of Jared Kushner's team who said they didn't need a national testing policy because this was more dramatically hitting the blue states and the blue state governors could deal with it. And that's not in the book, mm-hmm. um, but um, and, and, you know, I don't know if anybody, I don't recall anybody else necessarily confirming her reporting on that. Uh, but it does raise that question as well in terms of, um, is there a reason that not, that's not in the book? Do you think it's still uh, an important explanatory variable 
in the outcome of how they handled the virus at different parts of it. Um, so those two questions about uh, racial discrimination and then uh, crude politics. Yeah, so I'll answer the, the second part first, which is that Damien and I did not get specific reporting on abandoning this national testing plan because of the blue states. But what we did learn in the course of our reporting was that there was a sort of renewed focus over the summer when there were the big outbreaks in the Sun Belt um, and more of the South because it was you know, more Republican leaning states. And it's not to say that they didn't care when it was hitting New York. Obviously they ordered the national shutdown at that point. So that was actually the point where probably the government was most united. The president's approval ratings were as high as they've ever been at that point. So it's, it's not to say they suddenly took it serious. They, they obviously took it less seriously over the summer than they did in the spring, even though the caseload was just as high or higher. Um, but I, I think that recent politics absolutely played a role. And I thought so much of that was evidenced in the fact in, in, the, in the massive racial justice protests that erupted last summer, because obviously the, the murder of George Floyd was so heinous and people reacted to that. But it was also like months of buildup of the government not paying attention to how disproportionately this was hitting people of color. I mean, they were getting slaughtered in their communities by this virus. You know, the death rate for black people, I think, was three times as much as it was for white people. It was a similar rate for Hispanics. And the, the virus just even further exposed these socioeconomic divides that already exist in the country because the people who were already worse off were the people who were getting hit hardest by the pandemic, both with the shutdowns and business closures and school closures, and of course the actual infection and death rate of the virus, and the people who were already in the top one or 10% were doing fine in the pandemic. They could work remotely, um, they could homeschool their kids or have their kids you know, go to school from home. They had fine internet access to be able to do that. Uh, their incomes didn't necessarily take as big a hit. So. I mean, the country was just like this powder keg by the time the summer rolled around because they felt like the government was not recognizing how hard it was hitting these communities. And it was just confirmation of, I think, the negligence that a lot of these communities feel from the government all the time and justifiably so. So I think that was absolutely an element. And I think the president's response was was absolutely an element of that. You didn't see him try to empathize and understand that this had been such a horrible few months for, for so many people across the country and that this is why they were out in the streets protesting. But he saw it as a chance to turn the message around and paint these people as thugs and, you know, looters and, and people who were trying to destroy the country as opposed to trying to understand where so much of the country's anger was coming from. Thank you. Um, I, we could go on and on with this. It's a fascinating book. Fortunately, you've written a book about it, so you um, uh, people can can go and read it. I would say, by the way, Brian, in response to that question, and I, uh, there are a number of instances where I have encountered in doing the book that I'm doing extraordinary statements by the president in meetings where he'll just say, we're not helping these people because they didn't vote for me. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's, you know, I mean, it, it doesn't pertain in, into this case, but, you know, the Cal, and I think it's been reported elsewhere, but for example, the California fires. It was like, why are you even doing this? The California is not going to support me. 
Um, so, you know, these are other subtexts that, that, that run throughout this. The very, very good book is Nightmare Scenario Inside the Trump Administration's Response to the Pandemic that Changed History. Uh, we've been joined by Yasmin Abu Talib, who is one of the two authors with Damien Paletta, both who work for the Washington Post. Uh, it has received good reviews. It is an excellent book. Uh, and strangely, you know, in the United States, uh, we have so much going on that somehow the fact that an estimated 900,000 people have died and 33 million people uh, have been infected with this disease um, does not make it the only topic on our minds. Because in another time, we wouldn't be talking about anything else. And uh, one of the reasons that that many people died uh, and and were infected, uh, or many of the reasons are described in this this book. And I would add, there's an interesting counterpoint to that, which is that there is a new Yale study out showing that the speed with which the Biden administration has responded uh, may actually have saved several hundred thousand lives. So ongoing story, hopefully Yasmin, you will join us again as we continue to discuss this. Hopefully our listeners will go out and purchase Nightmare Scenario. Uh, thanks to you, Yasmin, for joining us. Thanks to you, Kavita. Thanks to you, Ryan. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to know more about what we've got coming up, go to the dsrnetwork.com. And if you're there and support this kind of thing, click on membership and for a few bucks, help support what we're doing here. Uh, and of course, we will be back next week with full roster of conversations on breaking topics from around the country and around the world. Uh, meanwhile, everybody stay healthy. Thanks very much. Bye bye.